it's always good to see you guys, especially when you have some uh, Muppets in the background. Some of I, my favorite I characters. Oh, there's, oh my God, there's, is that Fozzie? The Eagle? Oh, he's oh. great. The American Sam Eagle. Eagle. I don't see him. Sam the Eagle is not there. Okay. I wonder how you feel about the fuel crisis right now. It's hitting planes too. Well, yeah. it's hitting the planes like, you know, being out on the West Coast, we're kind of used to this stuff, right? Fluctuations mm -hmm. and paying more and kind of just throwing up our hands and saying, yeah, it's more taxes, more fuel costs, more this, more that. And there's a whole lot of reasons behind it, but uh, kind of, I kind of feel kind of Muppetish at times about what the hell's going on these days. You know, when there are puppets, you know what that demands, right? There has to be a puppeteer. And these days, I think that you could, you don't direct that in any one entity, but you can direct it on the overall regulation and the industry pressure that is brought yeah. upon all the participants these days in a lot of different ways. And there's there's some good reasons for some of that stuff. And then there's some some reasons that lack depth and logic. You know, I, I think one of the things that we're trying to do having these chats, these conversations about various subjects is to try to determine through dialogue, you know, what's really going on out there and what is logical, what the next steps are, whose agenda is what, and what are the end goals of some of these people. You know, we were driving around today, my wife, um, my wife asked me a pretty Interesting question, and I'm going to pose it to you guys. Are our gas prices, I mean, granted, Ukraine stuff, whatever, supply chain, blah, blah, blah. But do you, do you think they're raising the gas prices so they can force us into electric vehicles? Does that, is there a play in that? Is there an ulterior motive for that? She hasn't heard it from anywhere, but she it's obviously senses something that's pushing that pricing. I mean, it's one thing to say... Yeah, we're having a, a pipeline conflict over there and we have, but we still have fuel here. I mean, how does gas price go from $4, $3 respectively, wherever you are in the country, to nearly double that in such a short amount of time where, well, well the supply takes, you know, two or three weeks before it gets here. So how is it even short, like a well, week, like a week after? <laughs> well, oil's a commodity, right? And yeah. And it's, it's funny because growing up back in a small farming town in Michigan, you'd, you'd go to the uh, school in the morning and the radio would be on and you'd hear them talking about the futures of certain commodities, pork bellies, things like that, farming oriented futures. And what that is, is it's a, it's a bet as to what the value of those items will become over short and long periods of time. And that sets the current rate that people pay, because if the values is being uh, analyzed that it will become a certain amount over a certain period of time, then people are willing to pay more or less depending on what that valuation is. And oil's the same way. Oil is, a, is sold on the international market, not locally. Everybody talks about producing oil here, uh, LNG and things like that. And all that's very important but it's not like you can turn on the spigot. It's like, I think it's Jen Psaki. Jen Psaki. You know, she talks about, hey, you can't just turn this on and suddenly, you know, there's there's supply. Well, she's right about that from two standpoints, that, but she's also wrong about it because when you turn on the ability to create supply, you're increasing the future value or decreasing the future value of that commodity by putting more supply into its potential future, thus lowering the price overall internationally. 
that's that's kind of the game that's being played. But I I think that you know your your wife bring, brings up a very good point because when you look at all that's happening here, it's hard not to assume agendas are at play. And with all the large amounts of money in the infrastructure bill, through all kinds of technological advances that have come on, there's a there's been a push for many many years, especially from the West Coast driving east, or actually it starts on the West Coast and it kind of follows the coasts and pushes inland. You know these these ideas of changing to a, a very green economy, and and I'm all for production of alternate resources to provide us a better future for you know uh, the generations to come. I'm all for that, but I'm also a course correction type of person. I think things should be done in in a gradualist nature. And nowadays it's more of a disruption. It's more of let's peel everything down to its bare bones and build it back up again. But let's do it in two seconds instead of 20 years. You've probably seen the clip from Stephen Colbert talking about how it's not a big deal to him because he drives a Tesla and all sorts of little you know, he's supposed to be a comedian, so I understand that it was supposed to be a, a job funny thing. But the reality is most people don't drive electric cars and a lot of people can't afford them. A lot of people can't even afford replacing their current gas powered vehicle with a gas powered vehicle. It's it's difficult out there right now. And speaking from experience as someone who's been waitlisted for an electric car for a while and probably going to be waiting a lot longer. It's not exactly easy with the, the chip shortages going on. There's lots of reasons why a lot of electric vehicles still are a very difficult thing to yeah. get, and they're very expensive. You know what we should do? We should continue this this dialogue in as many different directions as we can, because that's that's part of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to understand directionally where we're going as an industry, where we're going as a civilization, really. But it'd be nice to add in somebody that's become more of an expert in the EV uh, industry. So I'm I'm going to uh, um, try to get somebody online here in just a second. But let's let's go ahead and continue the conversation while I shoot an email out to him. For the average consumer, is it affordable? I don't know. For the average family of four or five trying to buy an electric vehicle to cart all their kids around to different schools, elementary school, middle school, high school, is it necessarily a, an easy transition for them? No. Well, I'll tell you what, let's let's uh, get another, somebody that's got a, a different perspective on this because he is inside that industry and in, in a uh, position to help try to create an infrastructure that will allow some of the things for people like you, Jen, to get off that wait list and, and into the vehicle you're looking for. So that's a that's a good thing. But it, it, welcome, Aiden Zamora. I, we were talking just for a little while. And I'm really happy that you're able to join us because the there's kind of an uh, an undertow perspective of people that aren't even in our industry in the transportation logistics supply chain industry that are looking at a lot of what's going on these days, not just the the, the prices wildly being followed along in, at the gas pump, but the regulations, some of the, the agendas being pushed, et cetera. And, and they, they feel like a lot of things are lining up intentionally to purposely move us toward an electric uh, future. And I would love to hear your perspective, not just on the commercial vehicles that are coming out, but kind of what you see, especially that now that you've been in that business type for a while, 
what you see coming in your perspective on how the common man, if you will, or even the common industry person can be a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that That's a whole bunch of different points there that you just hit on, Chris. But just from a very high level perspective, um, I want to say that here in California, um, there's a great deal of time that's being spent to support this effort. Uh, from a state standpoint, um, you have uh, the public utilities uh, organizations, uh, some of them private, some of them state, uh, mandated by the uh, the overseers of those utility companies, and uh, you have, you know, just everybody underneath that's kind of uh, in a race to market, so to speak, uh, to deploy these new technologies and to take advantage of the different subsidies that are available at both the federal and state level. So what we're seeing is uh, you have a bunch of different stakeholders right now uh, looking at what's possible with current infrastructure, what that supports, and how quickly we can bring beef that up so that we can support uh, higher levels of uh, charge dispensing uh, so that we can build the uh, the facilities that are needed really so that this can keep up with how much uh, consumer demand is currently taking place in the marketplace with plug-in uh, hybrid electric vehicles, uh, fully electric vehicles, uh, and I'm talking at just the consumer level right now. Um, but we're going to see, you know, more and more uh, programs that are starting to uh, gain traction. Um, a lot of these uh, public charging stations that are available now um, are at different hotels. You know, that's that's where a lot of the focus has been. Uh, we're going to start to see more uh, enforcement from the uh, air quality uh, management districts. Uh, you have them all over the state. Uh, they have, you know, of course, the warehouse and direct rules that are going to be uh, more uh, strictly enforced. Uh, so we have organizations that are going to be very focused on certain segments of deployment. You know, you have your your level two chargers, um, like yeah, fast charging that's uh, available for Tesla superchargers. Um, and you have your standard home chargers, like in-home overnight chargers that uh, charge at a rate of about eight hours for a full charge or beyond 12 hours. More specifically, on, on the heavy-duty sector, we're looking at deployment of heavy-duty rated chargers by the end of the year in different locations across the state. Our competitors, you know, are very well established in the space. Um, you know, they've got national grids. Uh, what they're doing is more focused on charge systems that are able to uh, support uh, two vehicles at once, and it's mostly consumer. You know, everybody knows who Tesla is. You know, what Tesla is developing, their uh, MCS technology is uh, really going to change the game in the industry because, you know, we're talking about a technology that be able so, to charge a, a big rig that has a range of 500 miles in 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, that's really that's, So let me, let me, if I can, just slow you down just for a second or two, because I, even for people within the industry, some of the stuff that you're, you're talking about is you know, it, it hits me right between the eyes and then goes flying over my head. You know, it, some of the technology changes are happening so fast. But it, it seems to me that there are kind of two points that, that are happening at, this, at kind of the same time. There's this infrastructural component that needs to be accommodated. Because other than that, you have, to, you know, it's, it's kind of like PCs, right? It, I remember, I hate to say it, but I remember when computers first came out, you know, there was this this on-campus in the distance was your support. In other words, you had to tie into some 
mechanism across campus that supported your ability to get on a dummy terminal and do something. And then it evolved to having a personal PC, which is just sitting on your on your desktop with the capacity to do something itself. It's kind of like having a, a charging station at a distance in only one place. Then your self charging station, like I don't know, you know, something on the tractor trailer or, or personal vehicle or, or something in your your home, et cetera. And then computerization went out to the cloud, right? So that now now the the larger ability for computerization and programmability and things like that is is way more advanced not because you're not just sitting on your laptop but you're you're dealing with this giant infrastructure i think these type of technologies kind of lead the same way and you know you, it's in its infancy in a way for the the business side but you mentioned a second ago kind of two things that really jumped out at me and, and number one I, I want to to make sure that we say that that your company is is one of the people one of the companies that's really you know kind of leading the way and trying to drive toward kind of a combination between infrastructure and the components to support the infrastructure and that's watt ev so anybody that wants to look that up, you can you can do a little commercial for that in a few minutes but number one subsidy right that that's that's something that that really drives the nature of change when it's supported by government agencies, whether local, state, or federal. And I think that the only way this comes to the common small business owner or the person like Jen, who is on a wait list for a for an electric vehicle, is when there's some kind of subsidy that otherwise uh, only Stephen Colbert and his like will be buying stuff, right? That's kind of a crazy way to go because I, I think the stat is from a commercial, from a non-commercial side, it's maybe 3% of the vehicles in the United States are electric, 3%. And yet the whole country wants to drive toward this. And the other thing you mentioned is in the indirect rules that are becoming enforced. So what's happened is that's just a kind of a, a soft form of regulation. It's a regulation put on large companies, but it's going to spill down to the smaller companies supporting those large companies. And if anybody out there wants to know more about that, you can look at, I think it's episode three or four, Jaws Bites, et cetera. I go into that whole indirect source rule and a lot of things around that. It's a very interesting concept, but it's it forces change. The way I see it is that from a non-commercial standpoint, They've done some years of work from Prius on up till now to develop things that are attractive and are bringing uh, more people into that space. But from the commercial side, it feels like there's more pressure to make it happen. It's not, you mentioned consumer demand. It's not, the, the non-commercial seems like the consumers are starting to demand it. The commercial, it seems like they're demanding because it's being forced upon them. Well, I would agree. I think we talked about it on our last little bit together about the Super Bowl commercials and the there was a huge amount of Super Bowl commercials for electric vehicles from a consumer standpoint, from from the general public, you know, replacing your your old Ford with a new Ford, but it's all electric. And I think most experts would say, especially in California, you just got to plan ahead because it's coming one way or another. The question is how quickly smaller companies are going to have to decide what they're willing to spend the bulk of their money on. Electrification is a major factor, especially when it comes to consumers looking at where their goods are coming from. We talked about this last time too. It's it's huge in the food industry and in the fashion industry. People look at where their things are made. Now they're going to start looking at how they get to their house. 
exactly from the point of uh, creation to the point they get it in their hands. And if someone is really gung-ho about making sure that it is done in whatever way they believe, they're going to make a stink about the fact that, oh, it was made ethically, but it wasn't delivered, quote-unquote, ethically. It, it, you're right. It, it is at its infancy. You know, if uh, the guys who are running electric trucks today, you know, most of it is behind-the-fence charge applications. Um, and so the company I'm with now is really focused on building the infrastructure uh, from a public charge station for heavy-duty commercial use, medium and heavy-duty. Um, and how we're doing that uh, is through our mission objective, uh, which is essentially to reduce the barrier of entry into electric for transporters and uh, more specifically, smaller transporters. You know, we want to take the uh, 10 to 20 truck fleets, the owner operators, the guys that own one, two, three trucks, even one truck. Um, and we want to offer them a program that really uh, is a no out of pocket uh, scenario for them so that they can look at this and compare it to an existing diesel program and say, wow, you know, I can, I can really make this work. I can adopt this new technology. Um, and we're doing it in a way where the, uh, the program itself, the cost behind it, it has the charge built into it. So it's an all-inclusive deal. Um, that's, so that's probably the way to market for us is, is, is the way we see uh, capturing this audience. You know, we want to make sure that it doesn't really have any dog hair on it. Um, we've already held some very preliminary conversations with some transporters and some owner operators, and the interest is certainly there. You know, I think their biggest concern is obviously, you know, how am I going to keep this thing wheels rolling and making money? And so our uh, our flagship location in Bakersfield is slated to be operational in Q4 this year. Uh, we've got some other sites under development in California, and we have some models that we'd be very interested in sharing with anybody who's interested in learning more about these programs. Are there even commercial tractors that are available now for for drivers? And how much do how much of those bad boys run? Yeah, absolutely, Nico. There are uh, tractors available now. Uh, Volvo uh, North America is probably the uh, the leading uh, OEM in this particular space. There. Uh, they seem to be a little more focused in the electric space and uh, their range shows it in comparison to some of the other OEs that are out there. A lot of these are other OEs are currently running pilots, of course, but uh, to speak on the product that, that, that I'm most familiar with, the Volvo product, phase one units um, have a range of about 150 miles and those are in market today uh, and running uh, successfully, you know, back and forth within California, uh, harbor locations, back to yard locations and, there's actually a report out there that I want to plug here uh, for you guys to look at. Uh, it's got some really, really useful information called Roll On Electric, and it actually provides some driver insights on their use of this uh, initial technology uh, with Volvo. Now, the trucks that we're going to be deploying in the market uh, later this year are their Phase 2 product, um, which has got a range that's it's marketed as 250 miles. Uh, so we're really excited about that particular uh, level up in the space. Yeah. And of course, the next step is really the, the mileage is the main concern at this point for anybody putting themselves out there for a, an electric vehicle simply because of they've got to look at their own network and say, OK, what is our traditional round trip miles? And can we accommodate a charging station in one location first 
as this thing develops, because I'm, I'm sure your plan is to have them in, in a lot of different places eventually, because the, the main differential point in a regular diesel truck, aside from the overall initial costing element, which it sounds like you've tried to pull out of that the way you've included certain things, the initial thing is you can go to every corner and get some diesel, but you can't with the electric at this point. And when you say behind the fence technology, I think you're talking about mobile charging or on-site charging with some kind of battery operating. And of course that limits, I, mean, I would assume the electric grid and the, the cities involved have to have the appropriate, you know, ability to provide that type of electricity for either quick charging or even overnight charging stuff. Yeah, so I mean, behind the fence charging is a grid connected charging that's uh, typically uh, more of a privately owned scenario where X entity or X carrier is purchasing the charge dispensing technology, they're connecting it to the grid and they're able to charge behind the fence in a non-public form where not, not every carrier can go there and just use their charging location. Uh, that's really where WADIV differentiates from, you know, what's what's available in the heavy duty space right now. Most carriers are having to go to a mobile charge trailer type setup where you have a, a generator that's connected to the grid that's uh, dispensing technology uh, charging to the trucks um, or, you know, even non, non-grid connected applications. I won't uh, expand on that, but you guys can kind well, of. Well, you can uh, imagine. Yeah, you can. You know, it's interesting. Nico brought up in a previous conversation uh, a week or two ago the the idea, and this was, I think, interconnected with our with our talk about the indirect source rule, which just for everybody out there is a reminder. Basically, anybody that has a hundred thousand square feet or more, I think the Orange County, I think it was Orange County. I always want to say a resource board, but there's a different acronym for that. Southern California Air Quality Management District. Okay. Thank you. You should know all these kind of things by heart more than me. That's for, but but basically they've they've for a long time had a what's called a, a where's point system that yep. analyzes particulates in the air going into and out of facilities to try to gauge how the pollutants affect those particular communities. And in in the case of 100,000 square foot or more, this rule is now no longer it's being an actual rule in in functionality and it's going to start to be enforced. And that's true for people that own the warehouses or people that are actually leasing into those warehouses. So now this has been expanded to uh, people coming in and out of those facilities in trucks. So the idea is to get people to zero or near zero emissions uh, situations, which is right in your sweet spot. But the, the thing that Nico meant that I or mentioned that I thought was so important was we used, I think, Walmart as an example, maybe it was Amazon, I don't remember, but these large companies have the ability to make have engagements with a company like yours and put the same facility or stations in place, I would imagine, so that when that would encourage the environment, the community, the transportation community to further invest in electric electric technology because they know when they deliver those facilities, whether with their own fleet or outside fleets, they'll be able to, okay, you're going to be at the dock for an hour and a half, get a charge, you know, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And maybe at some point even charge for that charge, right? Or take it off the transportation bill or however. Hopefully I'm not giving too many people ideas because I would rather not have Walmart charge me for charging my electric vehicle. But Walmart will come up with that idea on their own. Don't worry. They'll give you free Walmart cards for <laughs> that that's exactly right, Chris. You you hit on a lot of points there that I've that are valid in current day market. Uh 
if you start to talk to some of the uh, the, the charge dispensing uh, companies that are out in market right now, um, they they offer all those types of scenarios, and and some of it is you know revenue share deals with the warehouse uh, owner or with the landlord in that particular uh, space. Um, I know that there's currently programs at the state level that uh, that offer basically fully reimbursable uh, programs. So I think the way it works is you you pay initially for it, but it's fully reimbursable once it's operational and you're offering the charge to a public environment. So the thing I look at with all this is there's so much money being pushed into the space. And while I'm not, I'm not opposed to the space at all, I think you all know me well enough to know that that when you go in a direction like this, that's, that's good for a very long-term societal changes. I think it's, it's smart to move toward it, but I, I feel like it's, it's crushing the smaller companies. And I think that's probably one of the hardest parts for a company like yours, Aiden, to look at because, I mean, I think it's easy to go to the big guys and say, let's make some big deals and really get this thing going. But what ends up happening in a lot of these things when there's regulations and the drive to do something is it wipes out this the smaller guys. You mentioned specifically owner-operators and things like that, but how would you get the – is it a pure subsidy play or is there something more to it than that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's completely the focus. You know, we we are looking at this from a whole perspective where we're not looking to align with one group or the other. Our, our main objective is to electrify heavy-duty fleets. So the way we treat a large customer from the way we treat a small customer, there's really no differentiation in that. Um, and, you know, uh, another way as I look at this and say, well, you know, how do we penetrate the smaller markets? How do we make sure we're reaching those on our operators is we're really going to have to develop an ecosystem that can have that reach with those smaller owner operators, you know, via bilingual uh, staff, you know, people who can translate, um, people who can make sure that they're actually getting the other side of the table to understand what our programs mean to them and what the transition is really from diesel to electric. So, from an outreach perspective, we, uh, we're, we're definitely uh, creating the ecosystem and the programs that are going to be looked at from face value with, you know, a real transition plan to electric. Um, you know, the ports have their mandates. The state has their mandates. Um, I, I don't think there's there's any question as to whether this is a future or not. I mean, it's coming. It's time for people to look at this in the face and say, I need to formulate a plan of adoption here. Otherwise, I won't be a trucker in the future. And so, you know, my message to carriers of all sizes is take a look at us. um, Let's engage. Let's start to have those conversations. With regards to, you know, because sometimes I feel like it's a carrot or the stick when it comes to this, to these, um, these, these, um, these subsidies that we, we, that the government offers, because ultimately, yeah, we're, you know, specifically in California, my, 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 my concern just being a, a citizen of California, if you if you think about it, well, we haven't found an al- a viable alternative to power, right? We're still generating electricity from, you know, we're not allowed to build any more nuclear power, so nuclear power is out there, not not available. We would literally have to cover the entire state of California to make solar power a viable viable option, so that you know, unless they found a way to. And I know that I know there's smarter people out there that are thinking about making solar panel roofs and solar powered whatever to make that happen. But the, the technology is 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 in development, but it's still a ways out still. 
Uh, wind power generates its own unrecyclable waste. So there, there's always going to be this to and from. So my, 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 my ultimate concern is, okay, so I'm not paying as much at the pump, but now because I'm pulling more electricity from the grid, my electric, electricity bill is now $800 to $1,000, whereas with regular fossil fuel at the current moment, my, you know, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still at a good balance where I can afford to drive to and from. And I think that's probably something that, that even small mom and pop carriers are going to have to really contend with because ultimately, yeah, it'd be nice to be on the cutting edge of technology, but at the same time, there is this, there is this level that, that you need to, you have to generate enough profit so that the company stays running. But at the same time, you also want to be, you also want to have enough to, for innovation and, and whatnot. And I, I think, I think the challenging part ultimately is, you know, having worked in the, in the trucking industry and being an IT guy myself, hey, we have, we have tractors out there that are 1974 <laughs> with like 600, 800,000 miles. And not because, not because, not because they don't want the newer truck. It's because it, Replacing an engine is still cheaper than having to buy a net new. No, any anytime you have new innovative technologies, their first adopters are always the you know it's it's like anything else, manufacturing anything. Somebody has to buy it and adopt those programs before it becomes ubiquitous enough to drive the costs down. And I see that as the intentional reason that governments are supplying so much subsidy into the space is to try to get it to a point to drive the cost down. Well, there's two ways of doing that, of course, back to what your your wife was saying originally, Nico, is that the, the one way is to drive the cost down. The other way is to drive the opponent technology cost up, right? And that's oil. So so there's a lot of disruption in that in that arena. The question really becomes is do we have the resources for this this technology as well? the rare earth mineral resources, things like that, that are required to the chips themselves. The, the next invasion might be simply over the fact that the place that most chips are made happens to be a target for one of the world powers out there. So, so there's a lot of dynamics going on in this. The, in whether this technology or something similar will, will be the next big thing is debatable, but this is the this is the direction that the powers that be have decided to focus their attention on. I'm so, saying so this the wrong way, but you shouldn't push back on it. You should accept my, that it's yeah. happening. It's just that you've got to develop the right programs to make it happen. And my challenge to that is, you know, like when the iPhones came out, right? When the iPhones first came out, it was, it was very market driven as far as adapt, uh, adoption of that technology. So when you're, when you're having regulators, lawmakers, you know, and, and, you know, if someone tried to develop a better iPhone and failed, they went out of business, right? But when a government decides, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to EV. I, I actually like technology. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a geek when it comes to tech. I love everything, you know, latest and greatest. But ultimately, if you, if you have a government, you know, with a stick telling you you have to go EV, what, you know, whether you can afford it or not, whether your family can afford it or not, whether the state can support it or not, whether we have trucking stations that 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 can support EV or not, we're gonna do this. There there comes a point where you go, well, what what you know? How do we how do we make that work with the with with the you know we're not we're not generating our own electricity anymore, or or they're not letting us develop those kinds of things. 
the challenge is, you know, when 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 the market drives it, when the demand, like, there's a steady rate of growth towards innovating the next new iPhone, right? But when the when when something when when you're forced to do it, you know, yeah, there I, comes a point where the hammer might 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 be too heavy, and people are going, you know, I'm just going to move out of the state. Well, you don't run out of taxpayers to pay for subsidies. You just go to a different level of government to 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 find to figure out how to make that happen. And you know, I I think that embracing technologies is appropriate. I think that when you have you know the the main technology that runs our world in, in terms of of uh, energy is coal and oil, and those in the predominance of the world population is going to continue to run those for a long time. So at some point you have to ask yourself, how are we going to change technology and move forward in advance? Solar, wind, whatever the case may be, hydrogen, doesn't matter. There's a lot of different things you can talk about. And somebody has to take the lead on that. And I don't think there's a problem with the United States, California in particular, being the tip of spear on something like this and moving it forward. The, the question I always have is, is how do you make that happen? And Nico, to your point, you feel forced. Well, that's what regulations are. They they draw some lines around things, maybe for safety reasons, maybe for pollution reasons, maybe for you know the the betterment of the next generation. All those kinds of things we can talk about. But I so I don't think the debate really is around whether we should or should not. I think the debate is how, and in at what speed and at what impact. The large companies can absorb this kind of thing. They can. They can look at their their margins. They they can see that they can gain some share in the market by doing certain things a certain way and adopt technologies much quicker. My interest in this discussion really is how do we overcome the challenges of allowing the smaller um, companies to per not only participate but to thrive in that environment. And maybe what what Aim was talking about having a company that's building the infrastructure actually helps subsidize that facet of our industry. Maybe that is the answer. I don't know. Time will tell. But uh, and, we're moving yeah. in that direction no matter what. And I, and look, I, I get it. Like regulation allowed us to have safer cars, you know, when, you know, airbags and seatbelts, right? Uh, regulations allowed us to go from the 70s where we had, you know, V8s that went like what, you know, one mile per gallon or, you know, 10 gallons per mile <laughs> when you step on it, you know? Um, so I get, I get, I get the whole, the whole regulation does help drive that, that choice and, and, and all for it. I, I guess at this point, we're kind of hedging our bets on a few things that, um, that I think maybe one day um, someone will come up with this bad boy. Look at that. <laughs> oh, there you go. That is <laughs> so, perfect. There's yeah, the real so, answer right there. So, so if you think about it, because I mean, obviously, what 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 you know, what all of this talk about innovations of what's coming, because eventually one of these days, EV will be 70, 80 percent, you know, part of our life. It'll be everywhere. Our houses will be electric. It'll be green as green as we possibly can, uh, be it, you know, market driven or regulatory driven. What's going to upset EV? You know, a something bigger, better, faster, you know, pulling you know, hydrogen, hydrogen driven motors, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a fascinating next, you know, two or three decades because 
you know, the drive to the drive to go EV is there's someone someone out there looking. It's like, how can we displace that? Yeah. <laughs> sure. uh, what are your thoughts? I know this we're going in a million different directions on this, but what are your thoughts overall? Yeah, so I, I wanted to kind of address some of Nico's concerns. Um, I could tell you're very concerned, Nico. Not really. I know you too well, but um, no. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be opportunities for microgrids across the state, especially in places where land is available. And um, the, the idea on the commercial side, you know, I think there's a lot of naysayers out there that are saying, well, you're not going to be able to charge this many trucks because it's too much, you know, voltage being taken up and there's too high of a demand amongst consumers. Well, you know, there, there's too many smart guys in the room for starters to say something like that to not be able to design a system of where we could charge these vehicles during a time where there isn't that much load demand on the system. Um, so I wanted to plug that in there. Um, you know, off-peak charging basically, or you know, off-peak shaving uh, is what they call it in the electric sector, I believe. So our, our public charge rates are gonna be in line with public utility charge rates. Um, what they look like now and what they'll look like in two years from now, that's an unknown. But uh, what we're currently planning for takes some of the future into consideration. And it's supposed to be at a very affordable rate, uh, more affordable than what some of the current public charge stations offer. Uh, some of it is through subsidy, uh, some not. Um, but our entire ecosystem is designed in a way that it's self-supporting of itself as we expand in our site locations and as we scale up, um, you know, most of the dispensers will be CCS at, in the beginning, but um, our, our entire electrical design uh, is based on being able to upgrade to MCS when that technology is deployed. You know, from a regulatory standpoint, I, I have to agree with you. I mean, you know, nobody likes being told you have to do this. I think that's just human nature. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I want to focus on the positives of this, you know, it's uh, decarbonizing supply chains, you know, making sure that our environment is protected over long term and creating even, uh, you know, a new way of trucking because, you know, some of the feedback as you guys will look at that, uh, what I plugged earlier, is that uh, these drivers, uh, they have more energy at the end of their shifts and, you know, there's been enough discussion, Chris, in the past that talks about, well, you know, how could we expect to add more time into a driver's schedule to kind of speed up the supply chain and create more efficiencies? This is definitely a way to do that. Um, you know, will it increase the averages of safety over a five-year period? I think so. I think we'll see that. Um, I've driven one of these rigs myself, and it's it's a game changer. It's totally different than driving diesel applications. So, it's it's an, it's a technology that uh, that we should not be scared to adopt because it's going to bring a lot of positive into transportation, middle mile transportation, and um, final mile uh, applications as well. So I just wanted to kind of end things on a positive note with you guys here as we kind of bring this to a close. But uh, that's my end note there, Chris. Well, I appreciate you joining us for a few minutes, Aiden. I really do. I and uh, I know our our conversation came kind of came at you in a lot of weird directions but it would be great in the future to get with you and, and really explore kind of the nuts and bolts of what Watt EV is trying to to get out there and do in the space because it's important that we know the players and I mean everybody knows one player right you know Elon but uh, the rest is is kind of up in the air and that that shuffle will happen and I think those that create the infrastructure have the land 
in the ability to have charging stations independent of the grid are the ones that are going to win big time. So I, again, I appreciate you visiting us for a few minutes and, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks guys. Have a great one and we'll talk soon. Take care. Thank Thanks for having me. That was an interesting discussion and I think I think there's a lot to be unpacked over the course of the next really few years because this this technology is being driven at us so quickly and I, and Nico the frustration you have is evident in the way you're bringing it out and I think it's I think it's also indicative of kind of what the 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 main of the market is probably feeling because we didn't even discuss the fact that the way to to create energy electric energy in this country and others is not exactly, exactly. green yeah <laughs> it's yeah so there's there's a lot of layers of constructing this whole thing that have yeah. to be first okay so we're green here but to your point all those precious minerals precious precious metals they're not exactly green where they make them in china Right. You know what, though? So, I mean, the, the, the hypocrisy is uncanny in that you go, we're going to be green here, but we're not, you know, we don't really care where we source this. I stuff. don't know if it's really <laughs> necessarily hypocrisy or if it's, see, there's an overriding um, almost theology. It's almost, it's a philosophy, but it's yeah. almost theology. There's this overriding philosophy that if you, the tide raises all boats, right? Yeah. And well, who's the tide in this case? It's the United States and the the powers that be that look down upon us, look at things and say, OK, how do we raise other countries into a, a economic zone that doesn't force them to use coal as much and doesn't force them to, to starve as much and doesn't force them to be economically depressed as much? Well, you can give it to them or you can be the first to do something and then you can kind of drag everybody with you over time all of us on this video and most of the people that we know and uh, associate with are going to be severely negatively impacted economically before those other boats can rise and that therein lies the challenge the transportation industry um it's been about 20 years since regulations have really been tightened the same way they're being tightened now. But at the same time, uh, it's not just to fuel tech that's being tightened. It's every aspect of the industry. And on top of that, you've got supply chain crisis after supply chain crisis. You've got truckers protesting. You've got blockades in Canada. You've got um, huge, huge supplies of wheat and oil and all these things that are just being cut off. You've got COVID for the past two years. These are black horse factors that they're very difficult to account for. I guarantee, you know, most financial projections for transportation companies were not accounting for Russia invading Ukraine in February when they were doing their Q1 forecast. So bottom line is that there's a cost for everything. What is the cost of green, uh, green energy? What is the cost? Some people would say, well, the cost if you don't do it is we're all going to die in a couple of years. Maybe, I don't know, I'm, not, I'm no expert on um, environmental stuff. However, uh, there's also a cost to switching everything tomorrow. As you can see, 
gas prices, at least in California, have gone up almost $1.50 in the past week and a half. That is crushing some families alive this week. And hearing certain, you know, political figures or celebrities kind of brush it off as nothing, saying you should have got a Tesla when I did three years ago. Well, three and a half years ago, or two years ago, a pandemic was putting everyone out of a job. So at what point do we say, where is this middle ground between trying to make these ethical decisions for our environment and also making sure that the population and businesses that supply that population with food and shelter and everything else in between actually are able to to survive in a world like that? Maybe we can build or pour some money into inventing a motor that'll use our fossil fuels a lot more efficiently. Because if, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? If someone came up to the, if someone came out with a motor that went a thousand miles a gallon. Oh, game game changer. Done. We're done. Because now the the price of gas would probably be like ninety nine cents. Or, or, or okay, maybe not ninety nine cents. Maybe it's a hundred dollars a gallon, right? But you can go a thousand miles to that gallon. See, there, therein lies one of the challenges. You, you, you kind of hit it on the head, though, because technology has changed over time. We mentioned this before when the carburetor went away from fuel injection systems yeah. and how that increased the supply overnight. Same with the technology you're talking about for extraction. You know, fracking is a great example, mm-hmm. extracting something through fracking. It may have increased the earthquake possibilities in the middle of the, the country, but it, it changed the dynamics in terms of fuel effectiveness and efficiency and extraction technologies. So we always come up with solutions. And if Aiden mentioned there's a lot of smart people in the room that are going to come up with the right ideas to do things. But that doesn't mean we, we don't go over a lot of rough roads to get there. The difference now and then is that this is a dramatic shift. It's not a strategic course corrective kind of methodology. It's let's burn it down and then build it again. That's kind of the thought process today. And that may be in part because of our world wanting instant gratification all the time. That may be even part of it. it there's, there's a lot of components to this that we probably can't unpack here. But I think that all of us have said some very interesting things along the line. And I think we're, we're all right on the same page knowing that no one likes to be told what they have to do. They like to have parameters set for them. And they like to see that those parameters gradually change over time with what is better for them as individuals in the society as a whole in conjunction with each other. Not sacrificing our entire lifestyle. I know that sounds pretentious as well, but it's, it's sacrificing our entire lifestyle to disregard everything currently to go after some new technology that really has a lot of controversy. 